Great Pentecost, the day when the first disciples encountered the Holy Spirit, he appeared as tongues of fire and thousands and thousands of people encountered him and were saved that day. So that's on the 28th of May, that's when we're celebrating Pentecost. Um, But as we walk towards there, we are going to be doing this uh, unpacking of the Holy Spirit. Um, Although we are having a break on the 7th of May because it is our 12th birthday, so we're going to have a bit of a party. And obviously there's the coronation that weekend, don't know who's going to have the biggest parties, the king or us. So there's a competition. Um, I'm slightly jesting. Um, Many vineyard churches in the States and in the UK are are specifically doing this um, sermon series leading up to Pentecost because we are really expectant of what the Holy Spirit is doing amongst us and amongst his people globally. But we want to be more expectant of what he wants to do. We want to emphasize the central role of the Holy Spirit uh, that he has in our lives as believers. If we have said yes to following Jesus, then the Holy Spirit is essential, an essential part of that. Um, Not just our experience of him for the sake of experience, but our experience of him for the sake of transformation, for the sake of our transformation and the transformation of the people around us, for the sake of all of those who don't yet know him. Our transformation for the sake of mission. So this morning, I want to look at the Holy Spirit as healer and how as he, as the, the Holy Spirit is moved when we are expectant with faith, when we exhibit faith for healing, the Holy Spirit gets excited. So I'm going to pray. It's like the window, you can't open and close the windows quietly here, sorry. So just enjoy the breeze as it comes in. Um, Holy Spirit, come. As that cool breeze rushes into the room, we, we, we know that your Spirit is here and we say we want more of you, Holy Spirit. Come and meet with us this morning. Okay, so a quick question. Any scouts in the room? Anyone was a, was a scout growing up or maybe even now? A couple? Oh, 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 three? I like that. Okay, no pressure in a moment. Um, I was a guide. Both my brothers were scouts. It was suggested that I left guides because I kept complaining that it wasn't as good as scouts. Um, but um, anybody know what the scout motto is? Those of you that put your hands up, I'll come to you in a moment if no one else can. Oh, oh. I think that's the promise. Be prepared. Were you a scout, Diana? A guide. There we go. I thought there might be more Bear Grylls fans around. That you know, he's like the chief scout, isn't it? Isn't he? Like I joined scouts. He's he's the chief scout. Um, be prepared. That is the motto that Lord Baden Powell um, came up with. And in 1908, he wrote in the scouting handbook, "Be prepared." means that you are always in a state of readiness in mind and body to do your duty. There we go. Always, always ready. Now, I like to think I'm quite prepared. 
in my handbag, very beautiful handbag, I think, um, I do have a first aid kit and a Swiss Army knife. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry Betty's not in here. She's gone to help in Vinnie Kids. But this morning, my Swiss Army knife came in very handy because we needed to open some cable ties and I've got some scissors on it. So there we go. Like, I like to think of myself as quite prepared. Um, however, I'm not always prepared for everything that lands on my desk or in my inbox or appears in my kitchen. And I don't mean my Aldi food shop. Um, life has a way of taking us by surprise, doesn't it? We can't always be prepared for everything that life throws at us. Because life has a way of bringing us stuff that we don't always see coming. You know, probably most of us in this room, even in our wildest dreams, over the last three years, we wouldn't have expected to live through an unprecedented pandemic. Um, some of the environmental disasters that we have seen, political instability, wars, and the cost of living crisis. We have found ourselves dealing with things in life that maybe we weren't prepared for. We've encountered issues that we didn't see coming. We've had problems that we weren't prepared for. We've been caught off guard. But there is good news. Because like any test that we're ever given, whether in school or not, there is always some answers. And, and in this case, I would say there's multiple choice. It's a multiple choice quiz to be prepared in life. So when you're trying to work out what to do, I would say that there's always and only four options. A, deal with it yourself. B, call on friends and family. C, ignore it and run away from it. Or D, you can give it to God. Now, we're all sitting in church, so we all know the right answer, don't we? It's D. A is not the answer. Because we all know that life throws things at us, that we, can't, we don't have the resources or the capacity to deal with ourselves. We can't handle everything on our own. B is the wrong answer, because unfortunately, people aren't always the people that we think they are. And even though we may be loved by friends and family, they can't always help us with the things that we're going through. C is not the answer because we can run from things, but we can't hide. The only thing we can do is D. We can give it to God. When we've been caught off guard, God is able and he can be trusted. And that is faith. God is able to handle any situation that we find ourselves in. And we have to learn how to trust him. The manifestation of trust is this thing called faith. And it is a risk. It does sometimes feel scary. And I believe that it's a daily decision, sometimes hourly, sometimes moment-by-moment -moment decision, to trust God. You know, and the Holy Spirit is in the business of building our faith muscles. Without the Holy Spirit's help in trusting God, it's like climb, trying to climb a mountain in flip-flops. You know, when we, see the, when we see in the Bible the Holy Spirit moved, he moved because there was faith. There was an expectation that he would move. So what does faith look like? If you've got a Bible, you might want to turn to Luke chapter 7. Um, if you've got a Bible at home, you might want to bring it. If you don't have a Bible at all, we have some at the back on the information table. We would love to give it to you if you would like one. So Luke chapter 7, I'm going to start reading at verse 1, just to verse 10. 
When Jesus had finished saying all these things in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and was about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve for you to come under my roof. That, that is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes, that one come and he comes. I say to my servant do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. He t- turning, and turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the man who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. So here we find Jesus in this little town, Capernaum. And while he's there, he encountered these Jewish elders these Jewish elders had not come, with, come to him to debate the finer details of doctrine. They'd not come to accuse him of teaching falsely. They had not even come to argue with him about whether he was the Messiah. They had come on behalf, at the request of a Roman centurion who had a servant who was sick and dying. So just by way of context, during this time in the New Testament, the Jewish people were under Roman occupation, and these centurions were kind of like the backbone of the Roman army. Um, A a centurion would generally oversee about 100 soldiers. And actually, in in the New Testament, these centurions were perceived in favorable light. I don't know if you've ever read Acts 10 with Cornelius, the centurion Cornelius. He's among the first Gentile to um, convert and to follow Jesus. Um, There was also a centurion that watched Jesus dying on the cross. And he said, surely this was the Son of God. So the centurions were were favored fairly lightly, uh, favorably. In fact, in this text, the Jews, the Jewish elders that have come to Jesus have come because this centurion was probably one of their benefactors. Um, He supported the Jewish people. You know, it's recorded that their synagogue was built by this Roman centurion. So when this, his servant is dying, he, he calls in a favor and he says to the Jewish elders, listen, I've heard of this guy, Jesus. Will you do me a favor? Go to him and see if he'll come and heal my servant. And they go on, so the Jewish elders go to Jesus on the centurion's behalf. And I love what, I find it really interesting what they, he say, they say in verse 4 and 5 when they say, they come up to Jesus and say, this Roman centurion, please do as he asks because he is deserving. You know, he paid for our church. You know, when you walk into the synagogue, there's a plaque with his name on. He's like a really important guy. Like, and because of what he's done, you need to do this for him. It's like these Jewish elders are begging Jesus. And Jesus agrees. He goes along on his way to the centurion's house. But before he even gets there, they encounter some more friends of the centurion. And they say, listen, the centurion realizes that he isn't worthy for you to come into his house. So you don't need to come. You don't need to show up. Just say the word and he'll be healed. 
And it's at that point that Jesus turns to everybody else that's following him, which we can assume is a lot of people. And he says, hear that? I have never heard of such faith in all of Israel. I have not seen such faith. And this is significant because the Greek word used to represent great faith, this is the only time in Scripture it's used. And so Jesus is making a point. Because often when you hear Jesus talk about faith, it's because you lack faith. You have little faith. How do you have no faith? And yet here, Jesus marvels at the man's faith. Here is an example of great faith, which unlocks the healing of his servant. So, three things to say about this great faith. What is it that makes Jesus marvel at it? Firstly, great faith expects a yes, but is prepared for a no. Secondly, great faith confesses, I am unworthy, but I am going to boldly ask for what I need. And thirdly, great faith knows that Jesus' words have power. So I'm just going to unpack those three things quickly. Great faith expects a yes, but is prepared for a no. The centurion isn't a Jew, just in case I've not made that clear and you didn't know. He's a Roman soldier. He sends the Jews on his behalf, but he has known, as far as we're aware, no known relationship with Jesus. He sends for Jesus with the expectation that Jesus will come, but he has no idea what the Lord, what he's going to do. He calls on Jesus, hoping that he will do what he wants. But he's prepared with whatever answer comes, suggesting that real faith, great faith, expects a yes, but can endure a no. Most of us, I think, probably when we pray, we just we'd quite like an automatic yes or an okay, but I don't think that that's real faith. Great faith says, I want God to do it this way, but if he chooses to do it a different way, differently to how I want or ask or expect, I still have faith that he is God and he is able to do it better than I can imagine. Are we a people that can say, even if we don't get the yes we want, we can endure the no and we can still say, Lord, I love you. Lord, I worship you. Jesus, I serve you. I bless you. I can handle the no. The centurion sends words to Jesus the second time after saying, come in verse 3, to saying, no, don't come in verse 6. I think this is because in his prayer request, he wants Jesus to show up, but as the centurion, he knows that he's, he's okay with whatever he decides. How can he ask Jesus to come when, and then tell him not to come? And I think it's because essentially he's saying, Jesus, you handle it in your way, and I'm okay with that. That's when we know that there's some great faith involved. When we can say, God, do it your way. We can ask him for what we want, but we're happy to take that step back and say, your will be done. A very small, silly little example. But when Graham and I were planning our wedding 16 years ago, I say Graham and I. Notice his brother laughed the loudest at that point. Um, <clears throat> 
I had lots of ideas in my head of what my wedding dress was going to look like. But up to this point, I'd been a bridesmaid eight times. I had quite a lot of opinions on what a, a, a wedding dress should look like. Um, and I had been into shops, tried lots of different dresses on, and decided what I liked. Um, but I actually wasn't buying a dress. Um, one of my mum's friends was coming out of retirement from making wedding dresses to make my dress. Um, and um, so I, I went to her <coughs> with my pictures, my ideas, my designs. <coughs> to keep a long story short, um, if she had paid attention to all of my ideas and all of the things that I wanted, um, then uh, despite my budget and body shape, um, who knows what I might have ended up looking like. Um, Needless to say, I bowed to her superior knowledge. Can you see this? this uh, it's not possibly not that obvious, but that's like a paper dress. I think it's called a twirl. Twirl? Toil. Yeah, twirl. Just checking. Um, I bowed to her superior knowledge, um, and I, ha I had to trust her that what she was making was going to um, be beautiful. I think it was. So um, I say, small, silly little example, but... You know, we can come to God with a long list of what we would like, of everything we want him to do, like I did when I went to Mia to have my wedding dress made. But we aren't the experts. We aren't the creator. We don't see the bigger picture. We don't know what's just around the corner. We don't really, even if we're honest, really have a handle on what life is like and what works. Great faith involves asking God for what we want, and then stepping back and allow him to do what he does. Do we have enough faith to expect a yes, but accept a no and let God be God? Secondly, great faith confesses I am unworthy and I will still be bold and ask for what I need. You'll notice the centurion when he sends word the second time, he uses that phrase, I'm undeserving. Lord, I am unworthy. Interestingly, the way that the Jewish elders tried to persuade Jesus, like I mentioned, was this request. You need to do it for him. He is deserving. You know, look at what he's done. You know, we might feel that. Look at what I've done. Look at how I've served. Look at what I've given. Look at how I, um, I give of my time, energy, and money. The, the Jews give Jesus this long list of what the centurion's done. But he sends word, and in effect, he's saying, Jesus, you know that I've done stuff. And I've done some good stuff, but there's other stuff that they don't know about. You know, our religious resume is only half of who we are. Chances are, most of us in this room have some Friday night stuff that we don't talk about in this Sunday gathering. The centurion says, Lord, I am unworthy. He detaches his resume, his CV, all the things that he have done, has done from his request. Maybe he's saying, you know, I don't expect you to do it because of what I've done. But Lord, I expect you to do it because of who you are. You know, when we pray, do we pray expecting God to do something because of what we have done? Or do we pray expectant that God is going to move because of who he is? The problem is, is that what we need from God is so much greater than we ever deserve. That's why we need his mercy. We can't and haven't earned enough to get God to do 
what we want him to do because of who we are. You know, I imagine the centurion, the centurion, if he was to pray, he'd pray, Lord, let's get the facts straight. I know and you know that I'm unworthy, that I have sinned and fall short of your glory. But I've heard of your reputation and I know a bit about who you are. Real faith kicks in when we confess we are unworthy, but yet we have the boldness to ask for what we need. You know, I can be honest with God that I'm not who I want to be, but yet in faith, I can expect him to do what I need him to do. And this is where the enemy, the devil gets in and he will try and make us feel unworthy and live in that place and convince us that God isn't going to do anything for us because of who we are and what we've done. But that totally doesn't factor in who God is. When you and I have great faith, we can confess our unworthiness unworthiness, and still believe that God listens and is going to act. This is the Holy Spirit's sweet spot. Seeing us confess our brokenness, and because of who he is, he meets us anyway. Our faith and expectation of him causes him to act despite us and despite our stuff. In the Bible, there's a book called Hebrews, and in Hebrews 4, 14 and 16, it says, since we have a great high priest by the name of Jesus, we can approach the throne boldly. We can come boldly to the throne of grace that we might encounter this undeserved favor. We don't get what we deserve. That's grace and mercy. Even when we're unworthy, we can boldly approach the throne, which means even when we've messed up, we know that God can clean it up. Even when we're broken, we ask God to fix it, not because of who we are and what we have done, but all because of who he is. So great faith expects a yes, but is prepared for a no. Great faith confesses, I am unworthy, and still boldly asks for what we need. And great faith knows that Jesus' words have power. I love what the centurion says. You don't need to come. You know who I am. You just need to say a word. God's words have authority. You don't need to show up. Just say the word. You don't need, I don't need a fanfare. Just say the word. I don't need you to lay hands on me. Just say the word. Verse 8. For I am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. This one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. I say, jump, and they ask, how high? He wasn't bragging. He wasn't boasting. but He was saying, I understand authority and power because of the position I am in. And I know that if, you, if I speak a word, my servant will do it. If you speak, you have authority and power. So Jesus speaks, and, it's, and the sickness in his house is under his authority. <clears throat> I don't know if any of you ever played the, wor- the game Wordle. I'm guessing lots of you did. My Facebook fa- page was like full of it. I'm like, not really like into word games. They're, spelling is tricky at the best of times. But from what I gather, um, it's this digital world puzzle where the people at Wordle come up with this word that then you have to try and guess right I mean pretty simple I think but 
I mean, there's millions and millions and millions of words out there. Why would you even bother trying? Anyway, for those of you that like it, well done. Um, <clears throat> trying to figure out the word. But do you know what? With the, when it comes to the word of God, we don't have to spend any time wondering. We don't have to try and guess what he's going to say. We don't have to try and work it out because our Bibles have that word. It's already here. You know, we don't have to wonder what God's word is about sickness or brokenness or despair. If it's sickness, it, the word says, by his stripes we're healed. If life is chaotic, he says, all things work together for the good of those who love him according to his good purpose. If you're broken or broke, God says, my, um, my, the Bible says, my God will supply all of my needs. If we are dealing with our enemies, he says, I will prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. Jesus was so impressed by the faith of this centurion. He healed his servant with a word. Great faith expects a yes, but is prepared for a no. Great faith confesses our unworthiness, but still asks boldly for what we need. Great faith knows that Jesus' words have power. The Holy Spirit is a healer. And when we exhibit great faith, he moves in power. The Holy Spirit is essential for our faith building. For our faith building and healing, for our pursuit of trusting God with everything, moment by moment. In a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to just wait in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And if you're suffering from a sickness this morning, if you're dealing with hard stuff in life right now, and maybe it feels too much to bear, then my questions for you are, have you given it to God? Do you have faith like the centurion? Faith that trusts God with the situation you find yourself in. Why don't you stand? If you're able, stand. I'm going to pray. and We're going to just wait on the Holy Spirit for him to reveal himself afresh. He's here already.